0: Robots are fundamentally stupid. They do things really well, and they do what we tell them to do. And so the, the really critical question, I think, that we need to be asking is, what are we telling them to do?
1: It's Aspen: Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, WTF, What's the Future? Venture capitalist and author Tim O'Reilly says, instead of worrying about machines taking our jobs, we should be seeking out ways to use technology in our changing economy. Ahead, he discusses how we can shape the future of tech-driven work so that it's human-centered. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from programs presented by the Aspen Institute. Today's talk is from the 2017 Aspen Ideas Festival. The festival was held in Colorado in June. Tim O'Reilly has identified and explained emerging technologies like the World Wide Web, open source software, and Web 2.0. He's invested in companies like Blogger, Foursquare, and Bitly. He also founded O'Reilly Media. In his latest book, WTF, O'Reilly focuses on the future of work and the digital revolution. He calls it the next economy and says it's restructuring every business, job, and sector of society. But the biggest changes are yet to come. O'Reilly sits down with Charles Duhigg, a reporter, senior editor, and columnist for The New York Times. Here's Duhigg.
2: I'm really excited because I get to spend time on stage with Tim O'Reilly. I imagine many of you know who Tim is. And so I won't belabor the fact, but I think it's pretty fair to say that the, uh, the history of Silicon Valley is synonymous with your history in terms of, of how we at least consume and yeah. have been introduced to the ideas that have ended up changing the world. And we're here today because you have a new book coming out. That's right. WTF. <laughs> And we're hoping to make this really interactive. We would love to make this a conversation with all of you. Hope you hopefully you have a glass of wine. Maybe you're on your third or fourth. If not, wait, raise wait, your where, where, Where's
0: mine? Right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so let's make this a conversation. And let me start, Tim. So take a big step back with me. What motivated you to write this book? What were you seeing? What motivated me to write the book is that
0: there's a narrative out there. And it's a narrative uh, that is in the press in the way we're talking about things at uh, even at Aspen Ideas, it's in our system so deeply. And that narrative is that technology is eliminating jobs. And this really uh, this book is a combination of a memoir, uh, uh, sort of lessons from companies like Uber, Apple, uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and then applying them to some of the questions of our economy today. And what I, what I struggled with is that that narrative says technology wants to eliminate jobs. And I see two things. Uh, first is that uh, technology has traditionally allowed us to do more. And the companies that are most successful are doing more. That's what makes them work. So why are we buying this idea that technology will just get rid of jobs? Why aren't we saying what will it let us do that is currently impossible? Uh, you know, when you think, take about advertising—that's been a, been a, you know, an area that's been revolutionized. You know, Don Draper would be out of work in today's uh, advertising economy because it's already being done by robots. Right. Uh, they're not AIs, but you know, Google matches up and gives you, and Facebook give you personalized ads.
2: Or at least you'd be a guy uh, with a yeah. CS degree, as opposed to uh, that's like right. The, right. well, the,
0: well, the jobs, the, the workers at these companies are already robots. Right. You know, you could not actually do billions and billions of personalized ads. Every single three billion Google searches a day, everyone gets ads just for the person doing the search. So l- let me that's me ask something qu- you
2: couldn't do before. Let me ask a question real quick. How many people in this room have AI in their lives? Ra- raise your hand if you feel like. Okay, a couple of you. Now, I'm actually, I'm actually, I think you're wrong. I think every, oh, oh, thank you. All Fantastic. Right. This is great. I think everyone in this room actually is using AI all the time. You just might not be aware of it. But for those of you who have AI in your lives, who raise your hand, how, is, how does it manifest? Uh, our, our son has a-
1: Audience members rattle off how artificial intelligence influences their lives. Duhigg repeats what they say.
2: Okay. So a startup in Silicon Valley, the proud parents. Yes, sir. So, so you, you're in medicine and it's sort of this AI differential diagnosis. It's proposing things. It means you don't have to remember them. Who else? Yes. I talk to my you talk to your phone. Does it talk back? Yeah, but it,
0: it, it knows what I'm, if I ask about, you know, what's the weather. Oh, yeah. Right. If you're going to,
2: I see you're in practice. your schedule. You're going to be skiing this weekend. Let me tell you what the snowfall is going to be. What, what, one, yes, sir. Back here. Okay, you're working with AI to design a new car. So now what's interesting, what I just heard, is we had a doctor, we had someone who, uh, the father of Silicon, we have a designer. These are not, I think 10 years ago, if we talked about automation and AI, people would think we're talking about blue collar work, right, we're talking about factories. Mm -hmm. But to your point, AI is in everything now. How many people in this room have an Amazon Alexa at home? They're amazing, right? My kids, like, talk to it all day. They talk to it more than they talk to me. And it's actually much friendlier with them. So, so I guess my question is, should we be worried or not about the rise of the robots? Is this, is this going to be good for society or bad? How do, I, how do I think about that in a sophisticated way? So uh, basically, robots are fundamentally
0: stupid. They do things really well. Uh, you know, one thing really well, and they do what they tell us what we tell them to do. And so the, the really critical question I think that we need to be asking is, what are we telling them to do? And in far too much of our economy, we have built a system in which we use automation to cut costs, uh, to enrich people who are already rich, and to reduce uh, the, the, the part of the economy that goes uh, w- what used to go to workers. We're giving a lot of surplus to consumers because, of course, that's seen as good for business. But we bought into the idea that, that workers are actually bad for business. If you can get rid of them all, why not? But we've forgotten that an economy is an ecosystem. And if people don't have money, they can't buy your products. And the whole system falls down. And so we actually have to, the, the, the master fitness function of our economy around uh, maximizing shareholder value is kind of the rogue AI already. You know, it is in fact the thing where we have, you know, just like in the Terminator, where we said, okay, there were some boundary conditions and we set this thing on a path where it became hostile to humanity. We basically built the modern corporation and the modern economy around this idea uh, that we need to fix. You know, we need to debug our economy. it's, It's increasingly automated and we need to figure out just like we're figuring out Facebook's fighting with fake news, and you know our ISP fights with spam, uh, we have all kinds of uh, sort of economic spam, uh, which is designed to enrich some small subset of people and impoverish everyone else. And we and, actually have to come to grips with that as a
2: society. And in the book, you you talk about this. You, you talk in a couple of chapters about algorithms, the importance, right. and that algorithms are always designed for this fitness, right? That right that. Google Google has one or two goals, and they write everything to those goals. That Apple has one or two goals, and they design. And and for years, we've said, this is what an efficient company is, right? An efficient company is a company that's focused on its goals and executes on those goals. Mm -hmm. Now, the question, though, is, has something changed about how much thought we should be giving to goals? Is that the problem? No, I I think we're at a point, and this goes back to your question of, why why did I, I write this
0: book? Uh, you know we're clearly at a point where uh something is gnawing at us and I, I was at your talk about the power of habit yesterday how many people were at charles's talk yesterday okay Thanks so for coming. Uh, talk talk a little bit about nail biting nail biting and, right. and habits and then let's and then let's Bring that into because, the broader conversation.
2: He, so one of the interesting things about why people, there's this big By question. By the way, Charles' book, The Power of Habit. Uh, <laughs> <it's> a, <laughs> the, there's this big question in, in science for a number of years, in, in behavioral science, why do people bite their nails? Because there must be some reward, right? Every habit has a reward. And it turns out that people bite their nails when they're feeling tension of some kind. And it's because it hurts to bite your nails. Is anyone, is anyone here a nail biter? couple of people. So we actually know a lot about nail biters because um, they tend to be more intelligent than everyone else. So they can talk about what's going on inside their head. So now everyone's like, I'm a nail biter too. Yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting is that when you bite your nails, it's painful. And that pain happens in the same part of our brain as tension. It actually overwhelms and crowds out tension. And our brain prefers pain to tension. Pain becomes enough of a reward that we develop a nail biting habit because we want to get rid of that tension. Right. So I heard Charles talk about this
0: uh, yesterday, and I thought, oh, my God, this is a perfect description of Donald Trump. You know, (laughs) uh, effectively, Donald Trump is our collective psyche nail-biting to get over this tension of inequality, of there's something wrong, and we're not quite aware of what it is. And I think in your book, you talk about the beginning of changing a habit is learning to recognize the stimulus. That's exactly it. And, 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 and I think part of what we have to do is we have to correctly diagnose what's eating at us. Yes. And, 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 and then we have to fix it. And, and my fundamental belief is that we can. You know, the future is up to us. You know, think about uh, Iowa, 1909. You know, agriculture was really beginning to be mechanized. You know, the high school movement started in Iowa, where these farmers in these small towns decided that the jobs of the future were going to be in the cities. And they basically taxed themselves to set up schools. 9% of US uh, uh, you know, children went to uh, high school in 1909. Uh, by 1935, it was up to something like 70%. Huh. And the high school movement spread. It was this bottom up thing where people basically said, We're looking at the future and we need to change. And so I look at today's world and I say, Wow, you know, we're actually, we, our diagnosis is wrong. You know, we're blaming, you know, we're blaming immigrants, we're blaming, you know, technology. We're not blaming the fact that we're not actually working to build a better future. And I, I think, you know, for example, this look at education. You know, we're cutting education. Every, uh, Robert Putnam, the great sociologist, said this wonderful line in a Markle Foundation uh, working group that I was in for a couple of years. Uh, he, he said, every great advance in our society has come when we have taxed ourselves to educate other people's children.
2: Oh, that's interesting. And it's
0: really a great line. But well, you know, that, that idea of it, like. How would we rethink education if we were really trying a, to prepare for the And it's the interesting future. you
2: mentioned that high school movement starts in 1909, which, of course, mm-hmm. is right in the heart of the Industrial Revolution, right? It's mm-hmm. right in the heart of this mm-hmm. time when people feel tense and anxious because society's changing, much like today. We're right in the heart of another economic revolution.
1: Right. It's Aspen Ideas to go. Thanks for listening. On the show today, Silicon Valley intellectual Tim O'Reilly and writer Charles Duhigg. They're discussing O'Reilly's book, WTF, What's the Future? Now, back to the conversation. Here's Duhigg.
2: Actually, my favorite chapter in the book is the one about Lyft and Uber. And it, it's because of the way you start it. You talk about how you had a consulting group come to the O'Reilly company yeah. to help you guys figure out you did a whole bunch of different things, what ties this together. And what they helped you realize was something about what your actual purpose is. Right. So, Yeah, so, so basically, uh,
0: we, we built a business model map of what were the things. The, the, the consultants who came to us had this idea that a company uh, Basically, a business model is the set of all the activities of the business that work to serve you know, customers and build business value. And how do they all work together? And so they use, for example, Southwest Airlines as an example. So Southwest uh, has point-to-point routes. Uh, they don't forward baggage. Uh, they don't have seat assignments. They have, high, they have actually a high, more highly unionized workforce and, and, and highly paid workforce. They have employee stock options. Uh, they have all kinds of crazy things that other airlines don't do. And that's what distinguishes their business model from United and American and so on. And it's actually made them for a long time the most profitable airline. They had this competitive advantage. So we kind of did this exercise for my company. We, you know, we, we had started doing conferences. We'd, we had, were mostly a publishing company. But we rethought, Who are we really? And we said, we're really a company that's about changing the world by spreading the knowledge of innovators. And so that allowed us to launch our online subscription service, uh, which is now the biggest part of our business, uh, launch a venture capital firm, uh, all kinds of things. Because we said, oh, our job isn't publishing books. And so in a similar way, I tried to deconstruct Lyft and Uber and try to understand, what are the key elements of their business model? And for all the crap that we see about Uber, uh, in, in particular, because they've got so much wrong. There's a lot of amazing lessons for the future economy there. Absolutely. Because first of all, amazing, beautiful customer experience. You know, uh, We have a network and a platform that empowers individuals to deliver that amazing uh, service. Those people are managed by algorithm. But that algorithm can be tuned. And one of the things that I also, this is jumping to another, you know, one of the tools I have for thinking about the future was this idea of managed by algorithm. Once you think, oh, oh, that's a key part of what makes Uber and Lyft tick. They can only deliver this service because the workers are on demand. And, and a lot of people have focused, oh, well, that's not like it should be a W-2 job or it should be, you know, you go, no, the future is different because the reason they're able to have uh, a workforce that rises and falls in response to demand is because it is algorithmic because you don't need a per, you don't need a person at every level so, that's right but oh well, well you, no, you go ahead. I just want to finish but you you kind of think about it for a minute you go oh wait walmart also uses algorithms to manage their workforce so does mcdonald's but those algorithms tell people when to show up you, they're kind of a graft onto the old model and they have all kinds of features where they take away agency from the workers and they've figured That's out they don't give people more than 29 hours because then you don't have to pay health benefits. Oh, you know, they're exploiting the system in a variety of ways. Uh, we, can, you know, we used to think we needed people for, for you know, full week shifts and now we realize we need people for two hours here and four hours here. Which is terrible, here. it totally disrupts their life. Terribly, right? terribly disruptive.
2: And so know, here, what, so, I love about, yeah. what I love yeah. about this idea is it seems to me that what you're really saying is we need to clarify what our purpose is, right? I need to know what O'Reilly actually does, right. O'Reilly spreads great ideas. Yeah. I need to know what Uber actually does. I need, and, and what's interesting about that is that embedded in that is actually a value statement. It's That's not right. a transactional statement, it's a value statement about what you think is important right. in the world. And so let, let me throw this out to the audience because I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. The company you work at, or the company that you've started, or that your son has started, if you had to make a value statement about what that company's purpose is—not what its business is, but what its purpose is—do you know what that is? Who, who feels like who feels like they know? Yeah.
1: Um, I'm Deborah. Uh, quiet down and listen to the experience around you.
2: Oh, interesting. And what kind of company is it?
1: Um, it's Outdoor Education.
2: Okay, that's great. Wh- wh- who else? Who else? Uh, yeah. To
0: proactively help people become better versions of themselves.
2: Okay. To proactively help people become better versions. And what exactly? What is the company? Snack Nation. We provide all the snacks at the summit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting, right? Because I think if I saw if you told me you ran a snack company, I don't think I would say, "Oh, it's to be, let people become better versions of themselves." But it's probably this vision that, that drives and motivates. Anyone? Anyone else? That? Uh, yeah. Or back here.
0: Uh, my name is Michael Rothrock, and. Um, our company creates strategic
3: alignment across an entire company from the top all the way down to the bottom.
2: That's interesting. And, w- and w- what exactly, what e- actually does your company, like what's the product? It's SaaS, software as a service. Okay. So let me ask you, I mean, when you think about the future and you think about the changes that we're going through, how important is it being able to make this value statement mm-hmm. being, versus being able to describe a business model? And are those one and the same, or are they different?
0: Well, I think the business model comes from the value statement, and it also comes from a recognition of uh, the work that you do. And, and uh, you know, I was interested in, in a panel that I just came over from, where the question was, uh, you know, what jobs are going to be automated away, and you know, it's the wrong question. You know, the right question is, uh, what work needs doing that we can use automation to help us with you know why are we so relentlessly focused on what we're getting rid of and and you know a great example of this came from uh, my friend Tim Huang who as uh, uh, a programmer was also a lawyer and uh, he, he 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 uh he worked for the EFF for a while and then he, he's now working at Google on uh, their policy team but he he described how you know he's an entry level lawyer he's given he's given these you know rote tasks and he so he automated them being a programmer and every day he did uh, the work that they gave him with fewer billable hours. And, and he said, I quit just ahead of being fired. You know? And because that ability to, to, to uh, automate the tasks conflicted with the business model of the, the law firm, which was to charge as much as possible for billable hours. But there are startups now that are going to put those law firms out of business because they're going, wow, what an amazing opportunity to expand demand. This guy Josh Browder has cleared like something like 24,000 you know uh, parking fines in England because right. with a robot lawyer you know he's now working to to automate the process of uh, the, uh, in, uh, in, in applications for asylum for immigrants, uh, you know, a lot of the work we're doing at Code for America, my wife over there uh, as, as a startup, uh, not a startup, a nonprofit that, that basically is trying to streamline government operations so that people can get, you know, benefits more quickly and more easily, you know, because automation lets us actually improve. So to me, like, if you know what you want to make better about the world, that's both a value statement and it also becomes the core the of a business, business model. model yeah
2: and, and what's interesting what i like about this is that is that it embraces the changes that are coming as opposed to says there, right. there's something to be scared about in the changes are coming yeah. it's, it's focusing on the fact that the fact that we're losing certain jobs actually means the future is better as opposed to yeah as opposed to worse and, and, and i think and, individuals as well as companies need to think that way
1: Tim O'Reilly is a technical writer and venture capitalist. Charles Duhigg authored the book, The Power of Habit. If you liked today's show, check out How to Survive Our Faster Future, featuring Joey Ito and Walter Isaacson. Ito directs the MIT Media Lab and wrote the book Whiplash. Isaacson is president of the Aspen Institute. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts, or find a link in our show notes. Next, Charles Duhigg asked Steve Case a question. Case is in the audience. He's the former chairman of AOL Time Warner and wrote the book *The Third Wave: An Entrepreneur's Vision of the Future*.
2: And I warned um, Steve Case that I would I would ask him a question because you're spending a ton of you're spending a ton of time funding companies in rural America. You're working with JD Vance now. How how does this work into Areas that traditionally don't get VC funds in how you make decisions on what you think deserves the money.
3: First of all, I've known Tim for more than 25 years and he's one of the brightest, most thoughtful people. We had a lot more Tims, uh, we'd have a better world. I do differ a little bit though the way he framed it, which is of course I agree that technology can enable us to do things better. Uh, And I do worry about the implications in terms of job loss. Uh, and the, and the, the agriculture situation is referenced that 200 years ago, 90%, over 90% of us worked on farms. Now it's less than 2% because the technology made farming easier. But thankfully, we then, partly through the school system, went on to create the Industrial Revolution, which created a bunch of jobs, and when that started declining, created the technology re- revolution. So we, the question is, how do we create the next revolution? My concern right now is we're only backing or predominantly backing entrepreneurs in a few places like Silicon Valley. Uh, Last year, 75% of venture capital went to three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. There are zip codes in California that get more uh, venture capital in all of Colorado, even though Colorado is doing pretty well. So essentially, we're backing entrepreneurs, doing disruptive things in a few places that are destroying jobs in other places, but we're not offsetting that, at least in part, by backing the entrepreneurs in those other places that can create jobs in other places. And this last election, we saw that. There was this notion that a lot of people felt left out and left behind because they were left out and left behind. So how do we figure out a way to include them in this future so they don't fear it, they embrace it? And a lot of it does come down to jobs and having people in certain parts of the country not really in tune with what's happening in in the middle of the country is is not helpful. So I just encourage everybody, a lot of people from California, New York, and Massachusetts, but most of you are from other places. What can you do to support your community Now, my argument was was while you might be able to do some things I'm sure are doing some things philanthropically, maybe the best investment is the sports, you know, some of those little startups, uh, which someday might become the big companies that anchor your communities and create jobs in, in your community. So I think we have to think about this in terms of leveling the playing field so everybody everywhere has a shot at the American dream and we are figuring out a way to have a more inclusive and more regionally dispersed innovation economy.
2: And that's interesting because not only I feel like is VC money going to these three places, how many people in this room don't live in New York, California, or Massachusetts? Okay, good number of you. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you would say that the Amazon genie comes to your house at least once a week? So much like the VC dollars, if you're giving your money to Amazon, it, frankly, if you're giving your money to Whole Foods, which is now part of it, gonna be part of Amazon, it's the same cycle, right? You're not necessarily investing in your community. Even though Whole Foods feels like our community, it feels like something that we have an attachment to, it's a big corporation. It's not necessarily our neighbors.
0: So uh, I do wanna
2: pick up on something else.
0: Uh, first of all, Steve, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I'm not saying that, oh, it'll all naturally sort out. I think we have to make better choices if we want to create those jobs. And you're obviously focused on a really important piece of that. I want to just expand on it a little bit. It's not just where we invest in startups. It's the kind of startups we Mm. invest in. I think one of the things that's, to my mind, really wrong about Silicon Valley is that for every real business that that VCs are investing in, I would say that 10 10 of the businesses that VCs are investing in today are actually financial instruments. They're companies that are designed to be bought, or you know, by by some bigger company. They're they really not that dissimilar from uh, the financial products that Wall Street gave us in 2008. Uh, you know, where it was sort of like, well, if we can find a customer for it, you know, like a, a you know these banks, uh, you know, that's great. You know, they weren't real. They weren't real businesses. And, and you know, it, it used to be that a real business had customers, and and To be sure, advertising-based businesses can be real businesses, you know, Google has customers, but so many of the startups in this frothy Silicon Valley ad ecosystem are really simply designed to be acquired and never designed to be a real business serving actual customers. And I think one of the things that's so exciting to me about the rise of the rest tour that Steve is doing, and we have actually, a, a, our, our fourth incarnation of our venture fund is focused on what my partner, Bryce Roberts, calls Indie And it's all focused on businesses that are trying to get to cash flow and real customers as opposed to, um, uh, you know, these sort of let's get meteoric growth and hope that somebody buys us kinds of startups. And, and that's what's so amazing about the opportunities in the rest of this country because it's actually selling real stuff to real people or doing stuff company. for real, for, you know, it has to be a real company. And we
2: need more real companies. So let me ask you this. Having written this book, how, how has your life changed? I mean, as you've thought about these ideas, as you've gotten more sophisticated about these perspectives. Are you making different choices now? Are you seeing things differently in your own life? Oh, totally.
0: I mean, first, uh, I mean, there's small things. Uh, You know, just becoming more aware of the immense gulf between my life and the life of people. You know, I carry a bunch of cash around, and I'm giving it to homeless people in San Francisco every day because I'm going, holy shit, you know? Sorry for the language uh, but but uh, you know it's a San Francisco word I, I, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we'll, you know we'll how, to... how, you know how, how entitled we've become you know and, and that we the, we the richest country in the world have beggars on our streets you know that's shameful that's shameful uh, and, and so um, well and we it, are... you know but so that that's a small thing but a lot of it is also just really uh, i 've started to think a lot for example about uh, the role of these giant platforms in our society and think about the role of small business in our society and in, in an ideal world, the platforms enable small business you know so you think about uh, there are these green shoots you know where people are making a living on YouTube or people are making a living via Airbnb or as an uber driver but Increasingly, there's this question of do the platforms compete against the people who make their service possible, or do they really take seriously their responsibility uh, to the people who make what they do possible?
2: I think that's a great question, and, and I think that that's probably the next frontier, is holding these companies accountable to our values the mm-hmm. same way that we feel very comfortable doing with like Nike right like right. we all feel comfortable with the physical goods that we touch holding keeping them respo- holding them accountable to our values but we haven't reached that point with many of our digital offerings it, how many of you how many of you have checked Facebook in the last 48 hours uh, pretty much yeah, half the crowd how many of you have ever sent a note to Facebook telling them what you think they should do differently couple people couple people right but what's crazy to me is if we had, say, the New York Times, where I work, if the New York Times published, started publishing fake news or made fake news possible, 90% of our subscribers... We, I, Donald I hear, Trump tells you every day. Right, that's true, that's true. We, we hear every single day over Twitter from our readers about what we're doing wrong. But most of us don't communicate with Facebook or with Twitter. We don't see it as a company that we can have this relationship with yeah. where it's a two-way relationship, where we're giving them input.
0: Well, and I think some of that actually, you know, uh, New York Times and other newspapers have always had explicit mechanisms for doing that, and uh, companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon and Twitter
2: have actually made it very difficult to communicate directly yeah. with them. Yeah. No, I think it's... Okay, so let, let me ask one more question, and then we'll take your, your questions. How many of you are worried about the future? How many of you think... Yeah? And why is that? What, what's uh, Ma'am, right here in the, in the white shirt. Yeah, I, I know, this is what happens when you raise your hand. But it's going to be, you're going to answer this question well. I know that you are. Um, this one right here. Donald Trump. Donald Trump, that's what you're worried about? Yes. And how, what do you mean, though? Like, yeah, you've been president for a little while. We're not at war.
3: Uh, oh, um, global warming. OK. I, I'm frightened that he, yeah, global warming.
2: OK. What, what, uh, what are other people worried about? You can just shout them out. Yeah, ma'am.
1: I'm worried about my kids' experiences and how to kind of um, filter out some of the anxieties that we feel as adults for them as they're growing up so that they don't grow up with the same anxieties or worse because of all the problems they know that they're encountering. That's
2: interesting. That's interesting. Yeah? You worry about social media. How so? What do you, what do you mean? What do you worry about it? I worry on the influence of social media on, on the young ones. Yeah? And, you're, and you're, is that your, Son. your, child, your son's sitting next to you and is oh, oh it's a nice kiss cuz that, that would be great, good great kind of share on social, social media, media right? <laughs> that would be good on social media
3: <laughs> <laughs> sir right here i worry about somebody getting hold of, of a nuclear device nuclear bomb or a friend in north korea which is going to make everything else seem quite trivial if we start throwing these things around right <laughs> i think mean, that's a yeah
0: oh i worry about the hatred in the world and the freedom that people
1: feel to express their hatred towards different, people of different ethnicities and um, people of different backgrounds.
2: Aren't you glad you came on a Friday afternoon to hear about all the things that we should be terrified about? Let's take, let's take one more back here.
3: I worry about men who are in their 50s with no education and who don't see a future for themselves.
2: That's a great, right, Basic. if you lose your, if you're 50 and you lose your job, you're never gonna earn as much as you, you once earned in your life, right? It's all downhill. So let me ask you, and, and thank you for those, and, and, and feel free to save the what you're worried about to, until eleven o'clock tonight. Um, okay. So Tim, let me ask you this. So the name of the book is What's the, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. These are all things to be worried about for the future. Mm-hmm. Should we be worried? Absolutely. I, I think we
0: we should be worried, and we should take action. And yeah. what does that action look like? What What? How is that? Well, what is that? Well, first of all, the many, many policy uh, specific policy interventions that I think we should make. Uh, it's pretty clear that uh, you know, part of the rise of Donald Trump uh, and, and the failure of Hillary Clinton was this appeal to uh, this notion that our society was in the throes, uh, in, in, you know, in, under the control of the financial industry. And it's actually pretty much true. You know, 25% of all corporate profits in America go to financial firms now. You know, uh, 85% of all corporate investment goes to stock buybacks and dividends. You know, I read the recent, uh, you know, after the ouster of of, uh, Jeff Immelt at GE, I went and read the uh, white paper of the activist investor that invested in, in 2015 and started the process to get him out. And it was really interesting because it was, Uh, this series of graphs that showed how GE outperformed its competitors in every real economy measure, but not in stock price. And their recommendation was that GE should borrow a whole lot of money, and then spend that money to buy back their stock to to artificially increase the stock price. Who gives a damn about the stock price except the financiers? Because GE doesn't need it. They have plenty of money to invest in their businesses. Jeff's been doing that just fine. right? So they don't need anything from capital markets. Capital markets, there's a bunch of people who are saying, GE, you're not giving us the kind of pop that we want. So we want to engineer you to give us a pop. There's a bunch of people who are manipulating our real economy You know, for the benefit of the financial economy. And Donald Trump, for all the things he did as doing wrong, recognized that and he spoke to it. Now, of course, he has not actually done anything about it. Right. Um, But I, I do think we have to actually start reinvesting in the real economy. And that's probably the biggest sort of policy thing. But there's all kinds of other things. We need to actually you know, deeply invest in education, again, you know, it's been the, it's been the solution every time we've had these, yeah. and, and that means, you know, for example, uh, we have to, you know, there's this great line from Hal Varian, who's the chief economist at Google, and it sounds sort of heartless, but he said, if you want to understand the future, just look at what rich people do. And you think, oh, what the heck? But then you think, oh yeah, rich people used to have uh, cell phones and nobody else did. Now everybody has cell phones. Rich people used to you know, travel around and now everybody does. You have soccer hooligans who travel all over Europe following their teams. right? You know, so so what, do, so rich what do rich people do for education? They put their kids in schools with small class sizes with a completely different kind of curriculum than you have in public school. Right. Like, So if we were doing it right, we would do what those people in in 1909, Iowa did. We'd, we'd have a massive you know, investment in education to have smaller class sizes. We'd be out there recruiting the best possible teachers who could guide our, uh, you know, students to be much more exploratory and to and to, to learn how to learn as opposed to learning kind of the rote disciplines that we used in the you know 19th and 20th century. And you know, you look right there, we would actually be creating millions of jobs in education, which is one of those those uh, industries that the the productivity of machines should be
2: freeing us up to do. But we're not, we're just taking that productivity and putting it in the bank. I I absolutely agree. And what's interesting is I think this ties back to the the start of the conversation. And and we're gonna go to questions in just one second. Which is, in many ways, the AI that is the strongest AI is actually all of us, Mm -hmm. right? When we say, I'm gonna distribute my stocks in a way because I just want to maximize shareholder value, right? I want to get the highest profits you're not making a decision about what you're doing with your stocks, right? You're acting like an AI, like a piece of program. Like you have a goal, and you'll do what it takes to get to that goal. When we say, I want to eat a certain way, so I go to Whole Foods. I want to get my goods delivered as fast as possible. That's more important than where they come from, so I'm gonna buy from Amazon. We are the AI. We're back to the power of habit. We have have all these bad habits as a society, and we need to actually change
0: some of those habits. And and at 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 least be aware of them.
1: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Looking for more great listening? The Aspen Institute released its new podcast, Aspen Insight, last week. In the debut show, you'll hear a close advisor to Martin Luther King discuss how America's history of slavery still impacts society today. And a first-generation American talks about defying the odds to achieve a college education. Search Aspen Insight in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Charles Duhigg.
2: So OK, so let's, let's go to some questions in, in the audience. Um, I work a lot uh, in rural America. And um, I can think of quite a lot of new industries that are happening around cities, so technology
3: jobs. I see more service jobs so people becoming coaches in similar roles. Um, I see people actually moving from cities to the land sort of to, to start farming.
2: I see that a lot in the Bay Area and New York too. but what I'm and Steve, maybe you have a, an interesting opinion here. Uh, what I what I often wonder is what are the kinds of jobs that are maybe Allow people to stay in small towns, and what is the kind of innovation that's happening there, and new parts of the economy. So I wonder if that's uh, something you have a view on. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, I don't have uh, uh, sort of deep insights into that, uh, uh, other than regional insights. You know, for example, where I've lived for many years in Sonoma County, there's now a huge weed industry, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but but yeah, you know, there's new forms of agriculture. that, You know, certainly, uh, you know, we were in a, a session. Uh, uh, was it earlier today? I, I've forgotten. You yeah, know, about about rural America. It was in the in the Pepke Library. Uh, a bunch of people here uh, from Aspen actually has a project in this area, and uh, you know, certainly, you know, specialty food production is is certainly one of uh, those uh, industries. Uh, tourism, uh, unfortunately, is, is one. They were talking, for example, like. Town suddenly realizing, oh, we have an asset. You know, there's this is town that Willa Cather was born in now suddenly made itself into a destination. They've kind of thought that through. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're also talking about the role of immigrants. Uh, it, actually, something like uh, I think it was 30% of, of immigrants end up in rural America, not in, in cities. And, uh, you know, and and, and they actually, actually build. Uh, their own economy, and then the question is, well, how do you integrate it with the local rural economy? Because one of the things that we have to remember, and by the way, absolutely great book if you haven't read it is Yuval Noah Harari's *Sapiens*, uh, which makes the case that you know what we collectively believe is how you know society progresses. It's you know a set of fictions that we're able to sell to each other, and an economy is fundamentally a fiction, you know, and, and you know. The, we, we, we basically agree to exchange things with each other. And, and so, you know, it's sort of interesting when you transplant a bunch of immigrants and they start exchanging things with each other because, hey, we need a Hmong store here in, you know, some small town. Suddenly there's a Hmong store and people right. come and patronize it. And, uh, you know, the secret, I think, of the future economy, of, of really any economy, is sort of captured in this wonderful uh, idea of Clayton Christensen, the Harvard Business School professor uh, from, from 19, uh, it 2004. He, he, he wrote what he called the law of conservation of attractive profits. And it's that when one thing becomes commoditized, something else becomes valuable. And I use that in my explanation of how open source software would lead to the rise of big data. Uh, but it also applies to, say, uh, microbrews. You know right. uh, you know uh, or food in general, food became a commodity, and what did we do? We elaborated on it, we found ways to make it valuable again by adding in ideas. You know this is organic food it 's not just food right it 's organic oh wait it 's not just organic it 's fair trade you know not all this coffee we is large We decommoditize it by mixing in ideas you know and, and you think you know many of you here are older, you remember. Uh, growing up when in your city there was probably an Italian restaurant and a French restaurant and, and, a, and a Chinese restaurant, and that was it. right? And now there's, you know, in any wealthy area, there's hundreds of different ethnic restaurants and people competing to create all of these innovative ways to serve something that is fundamentally a commodity. And we actually have a huge, wonderful, creative economy ahead of us. That's also happened with fashion. You know, when those weavers were put out of business, you know, by the uh, machine looms, we actually started going, "Oh, we can make more different kinds of clothes. They can be uh, changed out." You know, not only
2: this is this is what uh, capitalist innovation is. That's right, right. convincing you to pay money for something. So, so I guess the same thing applies to you know small towns.
1: Yeah. What job of the future do you think will have the most positive impact on the world?
2: Oh, that's, that's an inter- most positive impact, not necessarily the one that will have uh, the biggest paycheck.
0: You know, uh, this is probably not, not the right answer, but it's, it's, it's one that I, I do think about a lot, and that is I think dealing with climate change is going to be for, you know, our, our children and our grandchildren, what World War II was, you know, for our parents and grandparents. You know, there's this massive amount of work that needs to be done uh, to basically completely restructure the economy of the 21st century, or we're all going to basically go down in flames. And so if I had to pick one thing, it would be, okay, how do I actually start thinking about how do we rethink and remake the 21st century so that we get through it? Uh, what is your take on the creation of large tech monopolies like uh, Google, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, and others? And uh, do you think the US government could and should act the way it did in the past with the uh, regular economy? You know, uh, my thought on, on antitrust, it kind of goes back actually to a book I, I, I read part of many years ago called The Great A&P uh, and, the, and the Future of Small Business in America. Uh, so there was a landmark antitrust case involving A&P, which was the first national grocery chain And they were trying to decide whether sort of harm to small businesses uh, was uh, grounds for antitrust. And they made this critical decision that no, as long as it was good for consumers, it was okay. And I think we need to go revisit that discussion. Because the fundamental conflict today is really not going to be between big companies. They've kind of all come to accommodation and they, they fight it out. It's between these massive platforms and the people in their ecosystem. You know, and, and in my career in technology, I watched how first Microsoft, you know, they basically there was a thriving ecosystem of PC software vendors. And Microsoft used their platform dominance to basically take more and more of the value. I've watched how Google has bit by bit done that. They, they used to send all their traffic to everybody else's website. And it was like, no, actually, we can deliver more user value by doing it ourselves. And so, to me, I think there's a really interesting question for antitrust uh, or or some kind of legal intervention, which is the responsibility. How do we manage the responsibility of platforms to the economic actors who make up that platform? Now, I've also argued that you know, good business sense for a company to feed its ecosystem and to keep it healthy. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I think. When they don't, you know, and there's just all kinds of different ways that big businesses. I just there was at USA Today this morning, had a story about how, you know, the big you know, chain stores have actually squeezed tr- independent trucking firms who are part of their ecosystem, who they depend on. Right. But they basically force truckers into bankruptcy, you know, because they're basically trying to maximize their it's profits. It's incredibly punishing. So, So, understanding what the legal regime should be for these big, platforms, which do bring efficiency to the economy, and the, but the relationship to all the small businesses that, depend on, that they depend on and that depend on them, really I think
2: is a really fertile area for investigation. I think we have time for two more questions.
3: I'm a visitor here. I'm, I've lived in five different countries, and I just wanted to share an observation and get your reflections on it. I, whenever I come to the States, I've never been somewhere that feels more atomized, where individuals are more segmented from
0: each other. And there's an ideological uh, commitment to this idea of liberty and freedom but also leads to a lot of radical self-reliance. You know, when you look at technology, most of the technology we're using are things that social scientists and sci-fi authors wrote about 30 years ago. Yeah. Should we be spending some time building narratives about what the
3: next 10 years should look like? Uh, um, uh, economy on mutuality? or? other sorts of things.
0: Absolutely. I think you're completely right. Uh, Going back to Bob Putnam again, he has this great line uh, from some of his early research about rich versus poor communities in Italy. And he said, uh, he he discovered that the rich communities uh, were not civic because they were rich. They had become rich because they were civic. And that ability to have a shared vision, uh, I think, has fallen away in America. Uh, and, And this narrative you know, this sort of Randian narrative taken over Silicon Valley, uh, but it's really taken over our financial markets of, uh, you know, that uh, the people who who rise to the top have done so uh, by some virtue, I think really does need to change, you know, because fundamentally when we believe different things, we act differently. And I I, I think you're absolutely right. We have to first have a vision of who we can be together and, and that needs to be a shared vision where and, and you know we we have this polarization where it's well it's either you know raw unfettered capitalism or it's communism all the stuff going back to the you know the 50s you know or it's uh, you know socialism or it's you know no there's a there's a, a kind of rich society that we could be building that's so amazing where we could be living uh, you know amazing lives and uh, you know, And the fact is, uh, those of us who are here at Aspen Ideas do get to live those kinds of lives, yeah. where, where we have meaningful communities. And by the way, I, I love what Mark uh, Zuckerberg is doing with the work he's trying to understand. How does Facebook get used to create not this kind of fake engagement that you know, led to fake news, but meaningful communities? And I think that, that online platforms can help. People to find each other and to engage in in really meaningful ways, but I also think there's a profoundly local aspect of it. And, Absolutely, uh, we had this one guy who worked with us uh, at, uh, uh, in the early days of Code for America, and he said probably the single best thing. Uh, that you could do for civic engagement is actually to have regular block
2: parties (laughs) you know how do you get to know your neighbors how do you build local resiliency how do you have real faces and how do you define that in a way that you get to come to to aspen and meet people that you wouldn't have met otherwise and they they challenge your ideas so we're almost out of time so i want to ask one of the question, which is um the book comes out in october right wtf what's the future Besides buying the book when it comes out in October or pre-ordering on Amazon, it's available now. Um, Thank you, Charles. Everyone in this room, they're, everyone's gonna leave tomorrow, they're gonna go home. Yeah. In the next three or four days, they're gonna have an opportunity to make one choice that will make the future better. Mm-hmm. What is the choice that they should make? What should they do? I, I, I think
0: everyone has to make their own choice because it really is, that orientation, that says, "Oh, my fundamental job in this world is to leave it better than I found it." And you look around, you know. If you are, uh, you know, you know, homeless and out of work, clean up your, you know, your your you know your encampment. You know, if you are wealthy, uh, you, know, you go, "Wow." what do i do to make this world better you have lots and lots of choices you know and, and, and i would say for example for people who are, are 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 already rich a lot of the traditional philanthropies are not actually making the world a better place you know we're going to add a little a few more dollars to the uh, uh, endowment of a of a very rich university or we're going to put our name on a building not so good you know i go tackle hard problems uh, right. engage with uh,
2: um, and, you know, so I, that sounds pretty good advice yeah. to me. Thank you all so much for coming. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Thank you.
1: Tim O'Reilly is founder and CEO of O'Reilly Media. His book, WTF What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us, will be released in October. Charles Duhigg has contributed to This American Life, NPR, The Colbert Report, PBS NewsHour, and Frontline. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June, where they delivered one last bit of wisdom to the audience.
2: Tomorrow's the last day. Have a great Aspen, and then go make some choices to make the world a better place. And fight the robots. <laughs> right.
1: Or not. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank no, you. Embrace the robots. Embrace just, uh... the robots. Embrace the robots.
1: Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.